Welcome to the May 21st, 2020 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. Today, we'll review data on the high frequency of germline RUNCS1 mutations in patients with acute myeloid leukemia. Learn more about the development of an international prognostic score that predicts time to first treatment in CLL patients with early asymptomatic disease, and explore the possibility of improving the activity of virus-directed immunotherapies against certain types of EBV tumors. Our first topic examines data presented in the blood article entitled High Frequency of Germline RUNX1 Mutations in RUNX1 Mutated AML Patients by Laura Simone, José Hébert, and Guy Savageau, and their colleagues from the Université de Montréal and Maisonneuve-Rosemont Hospital in Montreal, Quebec, Canada. The authors described two key points in their investigation. First, up to 30% of RUNX1 mutations in their Lucigene AML cohort were confirmed to be germline. And second, RUNX1 germline-mutated AML shows a high frequency of NRAS mutations and other mutations known to activate various signaling pathways. In recent years, a significant number of acute leukemia predisposition syndromes have been identified. Notably, the World Health Organization, or WHO, has recognized both the importance and the unique biology of RUNX1 in AML by adding two separate categories of AML with RUNX1 mutations. According to the 2016 revised WHO classification, myeloid neoplasms with germline predisposition are a distinct entity. The most frequently mutated genes in these syndromes are GATA2, ETV6, CEBP-alpha, and RUNX family transcription factor 1, or RUNX1. RUNX1 is mutated in approximately 10% of adult AML patients and is associated with poor event-free and overall survival. Inherited mutations in RUNX1 lead to familial platelet disorder with predisposition to hematologic malignancies, referred to as RUNX1 FPD. In this disease entity, alterations in RUNX1 include heterozygous missense, frame shift, and nonsense mutations as well as large intragenic and chromosomal deletions involving chromosome 21Q22. Some 40 to 50% of affected individuals diagnosed with RUNX1-FPD will progress to myelodysplastic syndrome, or AML. The prevalence of leukemia predisposition syndromes in patients diagnosed with de novo AML, or myelodysplastic syndrome, remains poorly defined. It is estimated that between 4 and 9% of adults with myeloid neoplasms have germline predisposition, a topic largely unexplored until now. The authors sought to investigate the proportion of germline versus acquired RUNX1 mutations in the Lucigene RUNX1 AML patient group by evaluating 430 samples from these patients for germline and somatic mutations. Of 67 specimens found to contain RUNX1 mutations, 23 were excluded because the identified RUNX1 mutated allele was considered polymorphic in the general population, or there was insufficient specimen material for confirmatory studies, or the variant allele frequency was below 30%. 
In the remaining 44 samples, mutations were validated as somatic or germline based on PCR and bidirectional Sanger sequencing of patient normal DNA obtained from buccal swabs or saliva harvested at diagnosis. False positives due to leukemia contamination of normal tissue were excluded by evaluating concomitant leukemia mutations in paired normal and tumor patient samples. Of the 44 validated RUNX1 mutated samples, 12, or 27%, were found to be germline, including five missense, four nonsense, and three frameshift mutations. Only four of these had been previously described in RUNX1 FPD. Compared to those with somatic RUNX1 mutations, patients with germline variants tended to be younger and exhibited a higher white blood cell count. Molecular profiling of these RUNX1 germline-mutated AMLs revealed a higher frequency of NRAS mutations and other mutations that activate various signaling pathways. Interestingly, two patients, a mother and son, had co-occurrence of RUNX1 and CEBP-alpha germline mutations with variable AML disease onset at 59 and 27 years respectively. In addition, the mother acquired a GATA2 mutation at the time of developing AML, suggesting that RUNX1 and CEBP-alpha were insufficient in this case to transform hematopoietic stem or progenitor cells, and that additional molecular events may be required to induce a full leukemia phenotype. In summary, analysis of this leucogene cohort suggests a higher-than-anticipated frequency of germline RUNX1 mutations. A prior University of Chicago cohort study identified a 10 to 14% frequency of germline RUNX1 mutations, highlighting the need for additional validation studies. More data is also needed regarding confirmation of the pathogenicity of the individual germline RUNX1 mutations. In an accompanying commentary, Pamela Sung and Daria Babashak from the University of Pennsylvania suggest that our future focus should be on simplifying and speeding up genetic evaluation, including reflexive confirmatory germline testing with an expert variant interpretation service for these increasingly recognized germline MDS or AML predisposition syndromes. This will help optimize the timing of treatment intervention and, if an allogeneic transplantation is indicated, ensure that an affected family member is not a donor. Next up, we'll discuss the blood article entitled International Prognostic Score for Asymptomatic Early-Stage Chronic Lymphocytic Leukemia by Adelhiza Condolusi and David Rossi from the Institute of Oncology Research in Bellinzona, Switzerland, and their international colleagues. The author's two key points are that the International Prognostic Score for Early Asymptomatic Disease, referred to as IPSE, is a simple and robust prognostic model for early-stage chronic lymphocytic leukemia, or CLL, and can be helpful in patient counseling and design of clinical trials. CLL is characterized by the accumulation of monoclonal B lymphocytes with a distinct immunophenotype in the peripheral blood, bone marrow, and lymphoid organs. CLL is the most frequent form of leukemia in Western countries. Approximately 70% of patients present in an early phase of the disease with no anemia or thrombocytopenia, nor enlarged lymph nodes or splenomegaly. 
Patients with asymptomatic early-stage CLL are not treated until disease progression occurs, and active surveillance remains the standard for management. However, patients with early-stage CLL have a variable clinical course. Some require treatment soon after diagnosis because of development of cytopenias or bulky lymphadenopathy, while others show a stable or slowly progressive disease trajectory not requiring treatment for decades. Unfortunately, there is no specific, simple, accurate, and widely accepted prognostic model to predict the likelihood of disease progression, and hence need for therapy, in patients with asymptomatic early-stage CLL. In an effort to build and validate an international prognostic score that predicts time to first treatment, or TTFT, in CLL patients with early, asymptomatic disease, the authors analyzed individual patient data from 11 international cohorts comprising 4,933 patients with early-stage CLL. Three covariates were consistently and independently correlated with TTFT, unmutated immunoglobulin heavy-chain gene, or IGHV status, absolute lymphocyte count greater than 15 times 10 to the 9th per liter, and the presence of palpable lymph nodes. The IPSE was the sum of the covariates, each assigned one point, and separated patients into three groups with a distinct TTFT. Low risk, score of zero, intermediate risk, score of one, and high risk, score of two to three. Score accuracy was validated in nine cohorts staged by the Binet system and one cohort staged by the Rye system. By meta-analysis of the training and validation cohorts, the cumulative risk for need of treatment after one and five years of observation was 14.1% and 61.2%, respectively, for IPSE high-risk patients, while it was 2.1% and 28.4% for intermediate-risk patients, and lesser than 0.1% and 8.4% for low-risk patients. As the authors highlight, there are several prognostic models that have been used in whole populations of CLL patients. However, in most of these models, the outcome of patients with early-stage or asymptomatic CLL is either not analyzed or investigated as a unique subgroup, and overall survival is often the primary endpoint. The uniqueness of CLL patients diagnosed with asymptomatic early disease and the challenges posed by their management make TTFT a useful endpoint in the IPSE prognostic model. IPSE requires testing of only one molecular variable, namely the IGHV mutation status, whose testing is standardized and whose status does not change during the course of the disease. However, as noted in the accompanying editorial by Constantine Tam and John Seymour, IGHV is not considered an essential test at diagnosis by the current IWCLL guidelines, and in many areas of the world, IGHV mutation testing is not performed by community physicians practicing outside of academic centers. Of importance, FISH analysis and molecular testing for TP53 has no clinical utility when done at CLL presentation in early-stage asymptomatic patients. TP53 abnormalities, which can change during the natural history of the disease, have a predictive role at time of therapy, but no established prognostic role in an early-stage setting when determining TTFT. In addition, 
As shown in prior studies, short lymphocyte doubling time is rarely an indication to start therapy by itself and therefore was not included as a variable for developing IPSE. In summary, the IPSE model presented in this study is a robust prognostic tool based on routine clinical and laboratory variables that informs the probability that a given CLL patient in early-stage disease progresses and needs treatment. The model requires prospective validation and serves as a foundation for considering new independent predictors of outcome. However, as Tam and Seymour remind us, good clinical judgment and adherence to clinical guidelines remain the cornerstones of guiding initiation of treatment for CLL. Now for a review of the report published in Blood entitled Epigenetic Reprogramming Sensitizes Immunologically Silent EBV-Positive Lymphomas to Viral-Directed Immunotherapy by Tanner Dalton from New York University, Lisa Guilino-Roth from Weill Cornell Medical College, and their colleagues. Two key points from this report were that a high-throughput screen identified hypomethylating agents as inducers of latency-3 viral antigens in latency-1 EBV-positive Burkitt lymphoma, or BL, and that induction of latency-3 antigens in BL sensitizes resistant tumors to T-cell-mediated lysis with EBV-specific cytotoxic T-lymphocytes. By adulthood, at least 95% of the population have had a primary infection of Epstein-Barr virus, or EBV. This gamma herpes virus is implicated in a variety of malignancies, including aggressive B-cell lymphomas, such as BL, and HIV-associated diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, or HIV-DLBCL. Three main latency patterns have been described for EBV, which correlate with the immune status of the patient and expression of EBV proteins. In latency 1, the EBV nuclear antigen 1, or EBNA1, EBV-encoded small RNAs, or EBRs, and some microRNAs are expressed. In contrast, latency 3 tumors express all EBV-encoded latent nuclear antigens, including EBNA1, EBNA2, EBNA3AC, and LP, and latent membrane proteins such as LMP1, LMP2A, and LMP2B. Because latency 3 proteins are highly immunogenic, this program only persists in severely immunocompromised hosts. Latency 2 is intermediate with expression of EBNA1 and the latent membrane proteins. Interestingly, in EBV-positive BL and HIV-DLBCL, EBV evades immune responses to EBV by existing in a latency-1 pattern. Conversely, EBV-positive post-transplant lymphoproliferative disorder, or PTLD, exhibits a latency-3 profile, reflecting the severity of immunosuppression after solid organ or hematopoietic stem cell transplantation. Since the latency-3 program is highly immunogenic, PTLD can often be eradicated with restoration of the host immune response through reduction of immunosuppressive therapy. PTLD has also been successfully treated with ex vivo-derived EBV-specific cytotoxic T-lymphocytes, or EBV-CTLs. Similarly, latency-2 tumors 
have been successfully treated with EBVCTLs directed against the latency 2 and 3 antigen LMP1. This therapeutic approach fails in latency 1 tumors due to the restricted viral antigen expression. The authors hypothesized that pharmacologic modulation of latency 1 tumors could induce immunogenic latent viral antigen expression and that this would sensitize resistant tumors to EBV-directed immunotherapy. Using a high-throughput screen, the authors identified hypomethylating agents as inducers of latency 3 viral antigens in latency 1 EBV-positive BL. In particular, decitabine was found to be a potent inducer of the immunogenic EBV proteins LMP1, EBNA2, EBNA3A, and EBNA3C in BL. Notably, induction occurred at low doses and persisted after removal of decitabine. Escape from latency 1 in response to decitabine was not due to cell death, as the dose that induced maximal latency 2 and 3 antigen expression was 25 to 500 nanomolar, far below the half-maximal inhibitory concentration of the drug. EBV methylation analysis performed in vitro and in vivo demonstrated that decitabine results in global hypomethylation across key latency promoters, including LMP1 and CP, the promoter responsible for latency 3 eBNA expression, suggesting that hypomethylation of these promoters can release cells from latency 1. Decitabine treatment of latency 1 EBV-positive BL sensitized cells to lysis by EBV-CTLs. Also, in latency 1 BL xenografts, decitabine followed by EBV-CTLs resulted in T-cell homing to tumors and inhibition of tumor growth. Notably, decitabine treatment did not increase pdl one expression, suggesting that this approach can be used without derepressing pdl one in these tumors. In summary, this work highlights the critical role of viral methylation in maintenance of latency in BL. However, as the authors point out, at least one important unanswered question is why only a portion of EBV-infected cells convert to latency 3 after treatment with hypomethylating agents. One possibility is that cells must be exposed to drug at a specific point in the cell cycle to allow integration of decitabine into viral DNA. Another is that some virions are inherently resistant to latency switch or activate compensatory mechanisms to maintain the restricted state. In an accompanying commentary, Helen Heslop from Baylor College of Medicine suggests that further evaluation of combinations that might induce expression of latency or lytic antigens in a higher percentage of cells is needed. Additionally, it will be of interest to evaluate the spectrum of viral and non-viral antigens that can be induced by hypomethylating agents in lymphomas and subsequently targeted by CTLs. This approach may also have therapeutic relevance beyond lymphomas and could potentially be applied to other EBV-driven malignancies with restricted latency. For a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to www.bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode of Blood Podcast. Thank you for listening. 
The Blood Podcast series is made possible in part by support from Servier Pharmaceuticals.